This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and chances are that you are with your families and watching football on ESPN. At the end of this show, we'll share a conversation earlier in the year with the great John Skipper, president of Disney-owned ESPN, on how the network develops new content and staves off competition. But first, with the 72nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor just a few days away, let's go to Japan, 1941. We are used to the images ingrained in our minds of the seminal events that mark our history. 9-11, 2001, of course, a plane flying into the World Trade Center. November 22nd, 1963, those images of John F. Kennedy and Jackie arriving at Love Field in Dallas and, of course, the motorcade through Dealey Plaza. And December 7th, 1941, two images that might be ingrained with me. I don't know if with, if with you it's the... The thought, sometimes reinforced by images created in Hollywood of 360 or so Japanese torpedo bombers coming over the mountains of Oahu uh, en route to attack Pearl Harbor and our naval forces there. And as we saw last week, when you take a deeper dive with the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, so much more context comes alive than just a president and his wife landing at Love Field and taking a motorcade uh, from the trademark. You understand the politics going into the visit to Dallas, and you understand the forces at play and the vice president looking forward to a weekend of hosting Jack and Jackie. And as we think about the week to come, uh, it's that by the time you're listening to this, it'll be one week before December 7th, 2013, the 72nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. We are, I guess, beginning a countdown of three years before the next major milestone of Pearl Harbor, 75th anniversary. And in those three years, I'm sure, beyond Hollywood and documentarians and writers, there will be so many more perspectives added to that moment in which the United States was finally drawn, although they were moving progressively closer to engagement in World War II, the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. And we might say that we are getting the very leading edge of that new perspective uh, of uh, our beginnings in World War II with the publication this year of Japan 1941, Countdown to Infamy by Eri Hota. And Eri joins us in our New York studio now as we think about the oncoming 72nd anniversary and really go back to a time well before December 7th, 1941, to understand so much more the context of why... Emperor Hirohito, uh, Tojo, uh, Admiral Yamamoto would uh, deign to attack uh, uh, the United States forces on Pearl Harbor. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Why do it? I have always been fascinated by this question, why, why did Japan wage an unwinnable war when its leaders were quite accurately informed of the disproportionate weakness of Japanese military and the industry and resources. So it's almost like uh, trying to solve a historical puzzle and also a primal sort of the desire to know where you come from sort of motivated me to write this. Where book. do you come from? Tokyo. I was 
born and raised. And your what's your family's history and connection to the war? Um, not much. Um, well, my father's side of the family uh, was in banking business, and my mother's side was in um, aluminum industry. But um, and you know they had uh, family members die on Iwo Jima and and so on and so forth. So it's a sort of mixed bag. Actually, you can't really generalize. What was the first piece of the puzzle to fall into place for you? Right. Um, what surprised me most in writing this book was that the leaders really knew about the the risks that they were taking, but they were deluding themselves. And I was wondering how that could really lead to a, a collaborative decision over time. But just as I was looking through um, conference proceedings and memoirs and so on and so forth, you sort of understand over the t- over the course of eight months, you sort of start to get yourself used to the idea that the gamble that you're taking is one perhaps worth taking or worth justifying taking. So it's a gradual, accumulative process of deluding yourself. And that sort of made sense to me over time as I went through the materials. And communications and political structures are such that uh, while uh, diplomatic uh, groups are uh, in the United States, uh, while the tripartite agreement is being signed, uh, there isn't a lot of news being brought back to Tokyo for the populace to absorb. There aren't polls being taken to say uh, Japan either approves or doesn't approve of the tripartite agreement or getting getting more enmeshed in global in, in the in the war uh, specifically and attacking the United States. So when you look at this year, all of the engagement that President Obama had just to see whether uh, Congress would authorize use of force on Syria, there was none of that feedback loop that uh, today governments get from their people. Right. Well, one thing to remember is that Japan was not a democracy. Uh, are you talking about the the American side of the of how I'm the Japanese th- were reacting? Or? Well, you, you begin your book with December 8th, mm-hmm. 1941, and what a difference a day makes. And you paint a picture of a Japan that had been uh, so brought low by the Sino-Japanese War mm-hmm. for for a long time, and and a, a feeling of exaltation when this bare bit of news comes back from Pearl Harbor. So uh, it is whether or not there's a democracy, a, a sense of uh, uh, um, a shroud that's over the people right. in terms of understanding really what's going on. Right. There, there was this sense of impasse in Japanese society at large, I think, and as you said, uh, Japan had been fighting this endless war in China, which they thought or they were led to believe would be over very quickly. But for the previous four years, they had been fighting this really miserable war, which seemed to know no end. So when the war happened and the news arrived of the Japanese attack and the brilliant sort of uh, uh, victory that was broadcast over the radio, I think people felt a sense of release. Not that they analyzed the situation critically and said, oh, we can't possibly win this war if you know this went on for another four years. They didn't think that, but it was more the immediate reaction to um, release from the mundane, so to speak, I think that they felt. Well, I want to paint a vivid picture of the Japan, <clears throat> both leading up to 1937 and then, and then through the, the war with Chiang Kai-shek uh, and then into December 7, 1941, and begin with uh, a little bit of... Uh, 
a newsreel footage that the West might have seen a little bit of, of the Sino-Japanese War. As their dwellings and possessions go up in smoke behind them, an amazing scene of the misery that modern war brings to mankind. But the battle against starvation is just beginning. Several hundred thousand Chinese of all ages here in Shanghai alone face a daily struggle against hunger, a battle for bread that knows no quarter and no armistice, a desperate fight for life. Eri Hota, author of Japan 1941, help us understand what Japan was like in 1937, who its leaders were, what its motivations were for going to war with China, because that informs so much of what happens toward 1941. I think Japan in 1937 was a, a country, hubristic country, which thought that they should be the leader of Asia um, militarily, especially because of the um, Manchurian incident that happened in 1931. What's the Manchurian incident? Uh, well, Manchurian incident happened when the field army in in northeastern China, which was a Japanese army, stationed there to protect their railway interests, which they got from Russians, um, unleashed this attack and conquest of northeastern part of China and created this puppet state called Manchukuo. And the film Last Emperor is basically based on the, the emperor of the puppet state. Um, so I think Japanese military took advantage of this uh, initiative of the field army to uh, create a stronghold, a foothold in China, which they really tried to expand um, you know, every time they got a chance. So they were on the lookout for the previous, uh, say, six years before the China war really happened because they wanted to expand militarily. They wanted to be, they were afraid of the Bolshevism coming from the North as well, but they also had those imperialistic, expansionistic uh, ambitions as well. No one can deny that. So I think in terms of the army spearheading that kind of policy, Japan was a military country, militaristic country, on the other hand, it's wrong to say that it was a military dictatorship because it, was, it never was. Japan could be more accurately described as having two governments, one military and one civilian. And the civilian government was responsible for creating foreign policy, but then the military, by the constitution, had the privilege of uh, advising the emperor on military matters, which they abused increasingly as the 1930s went on. So bring us into the court of Emperor Hirohito and what kind of a leader he was uh, ascending to power and then hearing basically out of two stories out of two different ears from the, the military leaders and the civilian leaders. Paint a, a picture of the, the cast of characters in his court at that point. Right. Um, he would have military advisors, as I said, but his closest advisors were people that he interacted daily. Uh, the Lord Keeper of the Privy Seal would be the closest advisor that he would have. And they historically tended to be more uh, people of liberal persuasion. And I think he himself really relished those uh, um, influences. And as a young man, as a 20-year-old, he traveled to Europe and he especially enjoyed the trip to England, uh, loved to have English breakfast every day of his life. So I think 
his natural temperament was with liberalism and going along with the principles of international law and trying to make Japan a respectable country without the use of force. But then by birth, he was, because of his appointment as the emperor, he was made the, the supreme commander-in-chief of the, the um, army and navy, which put him sort of, I think, in, in conflict, eternal conflict. He had this peace-loving um, proclivity which had to be squared with this idea of commanding an army and navy. What examples did you find in your research and writing about um, the extent to which he was able to summon the fortitude to push back on some of the more militaristic notions of his of his army? Every time sort of war plan came up, he would ask to you know summon the navy chief and army chief and sort of really grill them on details of the tactics and also, you know, do you think this war could be really waged and could be won? Will there be a big victory? Are you really sure about these? And he would grill them. But then he wouldn't really, he can't really say, because he's not a professional soldier, that if the military leader said something like, oh, if we miss this opportunity, we can't really say that we'll win, but if we miss this opportunity, our biggest chance will be gone. So that's where his weaknesses come in. But he was valiant enough to express his suspicions and doubts in front of those leaders. But rather than sort of trying to convince Hirohito in a very um, logical way, they would sort of bring up this idea of, uh, you know, you should not miss the bus, so to speak. The bus is going to, to be uh, the armada headed toward, eventually toward uh, Pearl Harbor. What Arihota during this time is happening in the United States, President Roosevelt, uh, Secretary Cordell Hull, uh, and obviously a uh, leaning toward helping uh, Great Britain in its fight against uh, uh, Adolf Hitler. Uh, President Roosevelt frustrated in his uh, efforts to get even more engaged. Uh, tell us about basically early months of 1941 as uh, negotiations between the United States and Japan continue. What are we doing that is angering Japan at that point? I don't think Japan was angered, but it, it sort of kept in suspense about what um, America was going to do in terms of providing, um, in terms of punitive measures against Japan. Japan wanted to come and come to a, an understanding, diplomatic understanding. That's why um, the Japanese foreign minister sent an envoy, envoy who was uh, quite close uh, or it's a long-time acquaintance of uh, Roosevelt called Admiral Nomura, and he had been engaged in diplomatic talks with the United States since uh, formally since April. And I think at certain point, until, say, July 1941, I think Japanese were quite optimistic about the the way the talks were going because America, of course, was more amenable to make deals with Japan. He, you know, the United States didn't want to fight this two-pronged war in the Pacific and in the Atlantic. So 
both sides, American and Japanese sides, were quite hopeful reaching some kind of at least a temporary agreement. But everything turned sour after Japan decided to occupy southern part of French Indochina. What happened? Well, um, it signaled to the United States by going to occupy southern part of uh, French Indochina, which the Japanese claimed that they got by peaceful means. Um, which is now where the that, that part? That this is, oh, Saigon yeah, and Vietnam. Said, Vietnam. Yes, mm-hmm. sorry. And um, no, it signaled to the Western powers that Japan could attack their colonial possessions in Southeast Asia any time, and especially British Malaya and Singapore would be within target range for the Japanese to attack effectively. But then the Japanese thought that they were just, uh, you know, maximizing their chances and didn't think that Roosevelt would react so harshly, but they were angry. I mean, it angered Americans unexpectedly. Japan was marketing its efforts under this slogan, Building East Asia. What were the messages being given out at that point about what their ambitions were by going to uh, going to Saigon, going to and and expanding their territorial ambitions. I think it was marketed under that sort of Asianistic, pan-Asianistic um, ideology because Japanese claimed that they are Asians and they were merely Asian brothers liberating other Asian countries as well. But then people knew that it contained very pragmatic aspects of, you know, Japan wanting to continue the war in China, and unless they secure resources in Southeast Asia and possibly, you know, get access to, say, Dutch Indonesian oil, they can't really afford to continue fighting Chiang Kai-shek, who was not going to give up. I think people knew that it was a, a sort of cloak disguising Japanese imperialism. But then, you know, some people genuinely believed in that sort of... Uh, rather naive and grandiose ideology when they mobilized. Who was Admiral Nomura's counterpart in Washington? Who's handling negotiations? Um, he went to see Roosevelt, or how, directly? So. You said negotiations were going well, and then uh, and then things changed. So how did the, the tone of United States' response to Japan change? Um, to me, it changed dramatically after the occupation of southern French Indochina, because Roosevelt had this proposal to neutralize French Indochinese peninsula um, if Japanese withdrew from that region and sort of leave the question of China war um, untouched because Roosevelt knew that that was going to complicate the negotiations. So in order to, for Japan to remain on good terms with the United States... Um, Roosevelt suggested that French Indochina be somewhat something of a, a Switzerland of Southeast Asia, so that Japan could save its face too. That you know they they were claiming to establish peace on the French Indochinese Peninsula, and if they reach this agreement with America, and Americans ensure that no colonial powers to get hold of that part of the the uh, of Southeast Asia. Um, Japan could claim diplomatic victory over colonialism. But Japanese somehow didn't buy this or didn't act quickly enough. And that 
in the, just went ahead with the occupation, and that really angered um, Roosevelt. So it's the summer of 1941, and this is where our limited understanding of the history books tells us that these negotiations are going on, and what your book, Arihota, Japan, 1941, tells us is how what was really happening in Tokyo during those months in which this bold and outrageous and unbelievable plan of attack on Pearl Harbor is laid down. What's What happens though, that summer? Who are the players that, and, and what's their strategy? When I talk about Japanese leaders, I'm thinking about maybe a dozen or so leaders, both civilian and military from those two governments, who actually met quite often to have this uh, conference called Liaison Conference to uh, basically unify military and uh, more political policies. So they had to reach a consensus. So it was a very consensus-oriented environment in which from the military uh, quarter, there would be um, chiefs of staff from both Navy and Army and vice chiefs of staff. And from the civilian government, there would be Navy and Army ministers as well as prime minister who would be presiding over them. Other key members would be um, foreign minister, for sure, and finance minister and home minister. So it's about a sort of, yes, about a dozen. And the audaciousness of this idea. Who, where does this come from that we can send our Navy under Admiral Yamamoto to within striking distance of Hawaii and and score this decisive right. victory. What's who who's thinking this? Where where does this idea come from? The audaciousness is from Yamamoto and Yamamoto's team of planners, strategic planners who came up with it. Yamamoto Isoroku of course didn't want Japan to fight because he knew America very well. He just didn't think it was um, likely that Americans would sue for peace after initial loss at Pearl Harbor, but he was also a gambler, so he wouldn't have put anybody else in charge of tactical planning, um, aside for himself and his trusted advisors and strategists. So the audacious plan comes sort of almost separate from the political realm of policy making, and uh, actually the Navy chief of staff is quite underconfident about the about this audacious plan because he thinks it's unlikely that Japan would pull off a, a long, you know, long-term victory. Let's hear a little bit of, uh, in the words of a documentary that we found of Admiral Yamamoto thinking about the plan for the attack on Pearl Harbor. With great reluctance, Yamamoto yielded to the will of his emperor and devised one of the most daring and original ideas in modern military history. His plan? To sneak up on the American fleet at Pearl Harbor with his aircraft carriers and sink it with carrier based torpedo planes. He wrote to a friend Now that things have come to this pass, I'll throw everything I have into the fight. I expect to die in battle. By that time, I imagine, Imperial Tokyo will have been set on fire and Japan reduced to a pitiful state. I don't like it, but there's no going back now. Yamamoto told Prince Konoya on the eve of World War II, if we attack the United States, I will run wild across the Pacific for six months. But if the war lasts two or three years, there's no way we can win. And that's pretty much what happened, right? Mm-hmm. 
pretty much. And he was quite consistent about what would happen, which he, he was a prophet. Yeah, so a prophet who, one, uh, deploys 360 planes to uh, attack in at, in the pre-dawn hours of uh, in, uh, in Oahu, a sleeping uh, Navy base and civilians all around uh, Honolulu, and two, almost casting you know the future of Japan in terrible straits. We know, of course, what happened in 1945. And this struggle to actually understand between hubris and pride and practicality, Arihota, that if, how did it get to the point where Yamamoto was given the green light, knowing on the one hand, so many innocent civilians in Hawaii would be affected, and on the other hand, that Japan did not have the stamina to be able to carry the fight any more than a few months before they began to bend to a giant like the United States. Well, I think the conventional account would say that uh, the collapse of the diplomatic talk and especially the Hull Note was the sort of last card. What was the Hull Note? The Hull Note demanded Japanese withdrawal from Indochina and China and uh, urged Japan to reach a multilateral agreement with uh, with other countries. Secretary Hull sent that when? Um, late November. Where is the fleet at this point, and how are they communicated to that negotiations have broken down or that Secretary Hull has sent this note and proceed? Um, they were gathering at the northern end of Japan, you know, waiting for an instruction to, you know, whether to turn back or go ahead. And, you know, it was... But my my reading is that it wasn't the uh, Hull note that did the damage to the talk because I think the Japanese were deluding themselves that it was the Americans who, you know, um, failed the talk. But it was, in fact, Japan Japanese leaders in Tokyo who set the timetable for actions and a deadline for diplomacy, which the negotiator, Japanese negotiators in Washington didn't even know about. So it was really the idea that to maximize whatever chances the Japanese army and navy had of a victory, um, they had to act by a certain uh, date. And that's what military leaders or strategists kept hammering on. So they made the government agree to a certain deadline, December 1st eventually, to finish with diplomacy, give up on diplomacy, and just go ahead with the plan. So they were sort of looking for a, a, a triggering sort of last push to to pronounce diplomacy dead. And I think Hal Note sort of provided that impetus for them to unite and say, oh, you know, we've tried our best, but they said, you know, we couldn't really, you know, stomach all these demands. There's another important character uh, in the run-up toward the attack on Pearl Harbor, Arihota, and that is the Prime Minister uh, Kanoe Fumimaro, who's a prince. Tell us about his role in that uh, tumultuous summer uh, until July, and from July 1940 or so to October 1941, when he surrendered his prime, minister, prime ministership. Um, one thing is that he was prime minister for a good chunk of time, four years preceding Pearl Harbor attack. He was there as prime minister 
quite popular one in 1937 when the China war broke out. And he was rather chauvinistic and also wanted to... Liberalism was not his style. So he wanted a strong Japan to assert itself and be Asia's leader. So he was Asia firster in that sense as well. So he wanted to charm the rest of the world and sort of be the leader in Asia. Was he charming by nature? I think he was because he was prince and yeah. people were in awe of him and he dressed nicely. He was very tall and he spoke very little. He was known as a good listener and maybe that's how he perpetuated his power for so long by being passive and weak and he was impetuous when caution was really essential and he was he took too long when um, you know, action was vital. So he was very conflicted, sort of Hamlet-like character. And um, so he was he was in, in leadership position for nearly three years of the four years leading up to World War One. <laughs> so World War Two, and um, you know, by sort of trying to pursue, by trying to please everyone around him. He got along with quite a lot of people from with different ideological backgrounds. So by pleasing everyone, he ended up sort of cornering himself and cornering Japan into committing itself to this deadline of war preparations and diplomatic deadline as well. And so why is he replaced? <clears throat> he was replaced because he wanted to quit and he, he didn't want to be held responsible for leading Japan into war because... Fighting United States, he knew it would be a lost cause. So he threw his towels in himself. And Tojo is his replacement? Yes, Tojo was a surprise nomination even for Tojo himself. And and the palaces, the imperial palaces who nomin- which nominated Tojo uh, defended the decision by saying that since he's a militarist, a military leader, he could... Uh, put the militarists under his control better. What are the Japanese cultural ideas about pride and honor and courage? And I'll, I'll pick it up from the book, but um, the the sort of battle cry that would mm-hmm. occupy the Japanese army and navy for the next many years to almost say that this was uh, a foreordained attack, that there was going to be no turning back once the, the forces were aligned. You're asking about the how influential the cultural factors were. I think they were influ- influential in, in so much as that you know they had all been, Japanese society had been steeped in this cult of um, um, imperialism for some time now, a few generations worth of uh, brainwashing had taken place. But I think the explan- cultural, cultural factors could be overused and could be a sort of all-encompassing umbrella for everything because one can decide to refrain from war and that could be called courageous and, you know, honorable. And it's almost a tautology. You can use it both ways. So it might explain certain things that people said or try to just the language that they try to justify their decisions in but it, they are not in themselves uh, deciding factor decisive factors in the world decision 
So the morning of December 7th, 1941 comes. Uh, news slowly gets back to Washington. Let's hear a little bit of the newsreel of that day. Honolulu, first pictures of the attack on the Hawaiian Island delivered while Japanese envoys talked of peace in Washington. Japanese bombers overhead. civilian population ran in pathetic bewilderment from this unexpected assault. This is Waikiki, the peaceful residential section. The paradise of songs and lovers has been swept into the vortex of modernistic hell. Into the simple, melodious lives of the sons and daughters of sunshine, there has burst a rising sun blood red. Well, Ari Hota, author of Japan 1941, Countdown to Infamy, you know, it's tough to avoid the... Um, the tone of those newsreels of the time, uh, but that was certainly captured both the national feeling then and probably the national feeling 72 years later. What is a writer of Japanese descent trying to recreate the months leading up to December 7th, 1941, and then after? What's the experience like for you diving back into all these archival resources and trying to recreate this story? I think it was quite... Um tough emotionally because to ask the question could Japan have avoided this war it's quite a tough one and I, I feel that they could have there weren't too many chances but there were chances to turn back for the Japanese leaders to turn back but it's easier for you know later generations to say oh they could have done this or that but um, I feel that they don't ask this question enough that they perhaps could have avoided it, and why didn't they? And I think nothing was inevitable. It was inevitable to the extent that it did happen. <laughs> but to be able to ask this kind of question is a—it's—it's it's tough, but also a privilege. And to to be able to understand the really um, convoluted mindsets and different motives that drove this very um, reckless decision illogical decision and it sort of reveals human weaknesses that are perhaps universal. What are some of the key moments or a single moment and the single person who could have had a, had a change of view or, or a change of heart and decided to try and put the brakes on this? I think perhaps um, when Prime Minister Tojo, when he was made Prime Minister in October, sort of after all these deadlines have been set, he was urged by the emperor, who really didn't want the war at that point, to, to re-examine re the situation. So Tojo convokes a series of uh, conferences to really debate and examine the feasibility of war for about a week. And that was when perhaps more forthright debate and honest discussion could have taken place. And in those conferences, uh, Foreign Minister Togo and Finance Minister Kaya, they both really argue against war and try to engage other leaders who had already sort of decided that war was inevitable to change their mind. And, you know, they bring in numbers to persuade them. And But um, I think those, the last week of October really was when they could have really taken this more courageous option of averting war. Well, uh, history shows that it wasn't successful. Um, 
which brings us to uh, back to Washington, D.C., December 8th, 1941, and the scene in the joint session of Congress. Uh, no one would have expected the day before that President Roosevelt would have had to come from the White House down Pennsylvania Avenue and into the uh, joint chamber of Congress to uh, to make his famous speech. But let's set that moment up with a little bit from also the History Channel. Now it's time for what Roosevelt probably thought was the most frightening moment of the entire ordeal. The House was packed with all eyes on Franklin Roosevelt. And he had the challenge of having to get from the back of the hall up to the speaker's rostrum without falling down. And that was his worst nightmare, to fall in public in the full glare of the world. The Japanese attack upon Pearl Harbor. If he failed while making his way up to give the most important speech uh, of a generation, what would that say for the country? It would have been a terrible tragedy. It would have conveyed such weakness. It would have sent the wrong message to the Japanese, to Adolf Hitler. He stood up. His braces were then locked into place at his knee. And then with his son James on one side and his cane in the other, he walked down the aisle. The hall erupts in applause, catcalls, whistles. There was a sense of energy and excitement that electrified the hall. President escorted by his son James, Captain Jimmy Roosevelt, in the uniform of the United States Marine Corps. Eri Hota, author of Japan 1941, as a person who's grown up with the reporting uh, from the United States perspective on the attack on Pearl Harbor and certainly the documentaries and movies that have come from it, there is this impression that as a result of the attack, uh, the sleeping giant was awakened, right? And so I'm curious, as you wrote your book, what source gathering you did to understand more about United States reaction to the attack? I always knew about the sort of American attachment to the memory of Pearl Harbor just because by going to school here as a sort of, you know, college student, you get asked questions like, why did you attack Pearl Harbor? It's not even why did Japan attack Pearl Harbor, but you. So you get confronted with this burden of collective memory and patriotic sort of investment in this memory of Pearl Harbor, which as a Japanese, you don't really think about, which is no excuse, actually, because Japanese should think about what they did at Pearl Harbor and why they were at war or they initiated the war. Um, but I think you get reminded of these things in everyday life more than anything, rather than going through the historical materials. Um, in the wake of uh, 9-11 attack, you know, people are comparing the attacks to... Pearl Harbor. So all these things can be a bit surprising, to say the least, mm -hmm. but revealing of the American collective uh, psyche or memory. So Arihota, 72 years have passed. We're about to mark uh, the 72nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I noted in the past few weeks, a new 
aircraft carrier, I think, was christened in Japan. And I've seen other articles that suggest um, an increase in the national defense and military capabilities of the country. You have strong ties there. You keep your eye on it just like the rest of us do. What's the, what is the Japan of today and what are the lessons that they carry from them from 1941? I think the lessons are numerous, but the most important one in terms of today's development the people worry about Japan going um, military again, and certainly this right-wing uh, prime minister is almost acting like Konoe 70 years ago. He's trying to be assertive in Asia and trying to be charming at the same time. Um, I think the lessons to be learned is that the war hasn't really ended, despite the, the end of World War II and atomic bombings and American occupation and so on and so forth. Because I think Japan's war in China, which paved the way for the Pacific War, hasn't really concluded at all. And that Japan hasn't come to terms with the idea that it was an aggressor in Asia. Because of the Cold War structure that allows Japan to act as a very close ally of the Americans, I think Japan could afford to still act like a regional boss. And that position is being compromised by the rising power of China. So we are at the sort of crossroad, perhaps, and it sort of depends on how the Cold War ends in East Asia. And we'll all keep our eye out for that. Eri Hota, author, Japan 1941, Countdown to Infamy. Thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thank you. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. This is Okay, we're with John Skipper, uh, president of ESPN. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for spending a little time at the Aspen Institute uh, talking with polyoptics. Well, thank you for having me, Josh. Um, in our conversation today, touched on a lot of things. I think the first thing I'd like to talk about is, uh, you know, you have over your long career sort of figured out how to cover sports, how to tell sports stories. Mm-hmm. I talk all the time with anchor people, print reporters, people who are covering the political beat all the time, I get frustrated with sort of the the extreme conversation that we have about mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. What can coverage of politics learn from coverage of sports? Well, that's an interesting question. I may meander it around sure. a little bit and see if we come to anything. I mean, I think that it's directly because of what happens in politics these days and many other social issues in society which are quite polarized, right? So there is very little conversation from the middle. There's lots of opinion, uh, not that much candid and frank and constructive conversation. And sports is still something people can rally around, right? It's a it's communal experience. You can still watch the game and not worry that the guy you're getting ready to engage is going to have a dramatically different position than you are that he feels emotional about. So, I mean, maybe uh, that communal experience, it'd be good to get that back in politics in a way, right? Some right. sense of common commonality, some sense of common good. Um, so I don't really know. I, I can't tell you that I'm encouraged that politics will learn that from sports. Except that to cover it as a television event, 
Uh, it's not just a head-on camera and a single cuts camera. You bring in jib cranes. You bring right. in as many cameras, as much production technology back in the truck as you possibly can muster. Right. So you cover it as a piece of entertainment, right. which I don't. I think politicians take themselves a little too seriously. Right. The other thing I love, and I've read him for a long time, is Paul Lucas mm -hmm. covering the arcana of mm -hmm. sports, uh, right. sports with his uni watch and his ESPN right. column. Right. How do? What does Paul bring to sports? Well, he, he brings a fresh perspective and he brings fun to it, right? right? I mean, back to sort of your discussion. I mean, sports is entertainment, it's a spectacle. What can break through, of course, are stories and storytelling or fun or or um, social. I mean, Paul is sort of edging there into if fun, a little fashion, um, a little uh, sort of au, au courant that, uh, that's a lot of fun. And, uh, and the other person and group that I spend a lot of time with these days is Bill Simmons, uh -huh. The BS Report. Welcome to The BS Report, taping this at a, a really weird hour. It's like 6.30 here on the West Coast in the studio right now. Louis C.K., how well, are you? Good, how are you? It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, thanks for having me. Were you initially supportive of what Bill was doing because of your deep literary background yourself? Well, I think, look, first of all, I think we believed in Bill. Bill came... Uh, to work for us back in the early 2000s from Boston as a sports guy, did some beautiful writing. Bill wanted to continue to grow and develop and do more things. And I can't quite remember the chronology, but about three years ago, he suggested he'd like to do a website. He'd like to think about sports beyond just the games. He'd like to, and he'd like to bring in a little culture, a little music and a little film and, and have sort of a little bit of a mashup with sports at sort of the center. And he'd like to find some great new writers and and uh, some fresh perspectives. And I think that's what we've done with Grantland. And, of course, the podcasts are a central part of it. Uh, we created a little podcast studio in Los Angeles for it because we can get lots of athletes and lots of people by the studio. And Bill's good at it because he's like talking to a fan. Right. He's, uh, uh, he's not a real... People think he's just like any other fan. He's not any other fan because his, his uh, knowledge of sports is exhaustive. He's a reader as well. It probably didn't hurt, back to your original question, that uh, I have a literary bent uh, in terms of my, what I personally enjoy. And so Bill suggested to me he wants to look for young writers and think about books and how that plays into sports is all sort of um, uh, all sort of goes down easy with me. Uh, when David Bornstein came to you and said... Uh, I want to start ESPN a magazine. What were your first thoughts about how you translate the visual product onto the page? You know, remember I'd, I'd worked many years at Rolling Stones. So yeah. In terms of thinking what the magazine looked like, what I thought I wanted to do was to bring that level of photography and graphic design to sports. Um, and I thought that the pre preeminent magazine for sports for many, many years had been Sports Illustrated, which was really a news weekly exercise in reporting the news and I thought we could bring a new sort of big visual feel to it uh, bring graphics to it the other uh, big size I think helped with that um, so and and we also it was important also that you have a different contemplation of what a sports magazine was going to be we were going to do a magazine to look forward because that was the digital you know it was a dawn of the digital age 1998 yeah but I think we understood already that the news cycle was gone you could no longer get a magazine on Wednesday that told you what happened on Sunday. ESPN messed that up. I didn't. That was before I got there. But ESPN told you the news. They showed the highlight uh, 
uh, so that you didn't need to see it again on Wednesday. It, had SI been doing the full-page bleeds the way the mag- ESPN the magazine did, the four or five pictures that really brought you onto center court the way they do now? The, the early, the, we, we thought early on about the idea of doing three big spreads at the front of the They're magazine. Amazing. And, and uh, oddly enough, that, that same concept showed in, up in Sports Illustrated very similar to the same time. But I can't find too much fault with that. You know, we were we were stealing ideas from Rolling Stone, from Sports, the old Sports Illustrated. We were stealing ideas from newspapers. You know, I shouldn't say stealing. We were adapting. We, we were extending. So that's it's part of the part of the business. Well, I mean, and to to see how this has gone, I was uh, coming out of my apartment on Jones Street in Greenwich Village a couple months ago, uh-huh. and I'm seeing this photo crew set up mm-hmm. and what they're doing with Jimmy Johnson and his wife is replicating yep. the exact setup of Bob Dylan on the cover of one yep. of his early iconic albums. Absolutely. It was, uh, shoot, I can't remember it's his second album. Yeah. And he's got his girlfriend at the time whose name I can't remember. For, the Freewheeling Bob Dylan. Freewheeling. The Freewheeling Bob Dylan. And his girlfriend's name was Susie, I believe. Yeah. And it's the iconic shot of him just sort of hunched over with that great haircut. Susie in his shoulder. Yeah, like down that. in the village. So, Which, by the way, is where Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson lives in the city. And, and I live right, I, I looked yeah. right on the shoot from my from my ground floor window, so that's going to be my Christmas card. My eight-year-old uh, and my five-year-old are going to okay. replicate Jimmy Johnson and replicating Bob Dylan. So from those early days, 1997, you are a Disney publishing guy. Uh, you're creating the, the magazine for mm-hmm. ESPN. Uh, how did you make the transition into I I know how to make all these rights deals, I know how to cover all these live events, I know how to create new channels and new platforms, eventually creating, as we said this morning, a movement from an idea that you're watching ESPN, a television network, to mm-hmm. a, vid- to a mm-hmm. video platform. Well, the progression was from the magazine to ESPN.com and, and working on uh, the website and mobile and then uh, getting some responsibility for television. I couldn't have, I didn't have a vision. I didn't know how to do it. The um, There were lots and lots of very skilled people at ESPN who understood how to do that. So my role was to sort of think about big picture, what is the overall vision of the company going to be? How are we going to manage this cross-platform content? Um, so, but it wasn't about how to, you know, those guys can't learn anything from me. I can learn a lot from them. We got an awful lot of good people who've been at ESPN for years and years, and and ESPN has been the home of most of the technological innovations that are in sports these days. Whether it be the first and ten line, or cameras behind the behind the catcher, or you know the graphic packages that we do now. So. Those guys really do it, not me. For Red Sox fans, it was tough waking up every morning knowing that they always expected something to go wrong. Four days in October isn't just about the 2004 ALCS come from behind win by the Boston Red Sox. It's about a transformation, uh, a transformation of their fan base from the lovable losers and downtrodden fans, Red Sox Nation, to all of a sudden, within four days, winners. Where did 30 for 30 come from? 30 for 30 came from, interestingly enough, uh, a uh, meeting in a uh, hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton down the Battery in New York City where we were trying to think about what to do uh, for the 30th anniversary of ESPN. And we decided we did not want to do a retrospective of the last 30 years or 30 years of what happened at ESPN, but that we'd give our fans a gift. And that gift would be 30 films for our 30th anniversary that would be about 
things that had happened in those 30 years that resonated emotionally, that mattered, and that we would find filmmakers who had something they really deeply cared about. Uh, one of the early ones that we signed up was Barry Levinson, uh, of course, the great movie director uh, who's from Baltimore, who was a Colts fan and wanted to tell the story of the Colts in Baltimore and their leaving and what it meant to the city through the marching band, which never disbanded. 1983 was a very bad year for Baltimore Colt fans. We hear rumors that the Colts are moving. We hear they're going to Indianapolis, they're going to Phoenix, and uh, everybody was really heartbroken. Finally, January 20th, 1984, it came to a head at the Baltimore-Washington airport. I'm encouraged. I really am. Uh, William Donald Schaefer, who was mayor of Baltimore, called a press conference. Mr. Ursay Percy was coming into town to address these rumors. When Mr. Ursay arrived, he had even trouble getting into the door. And I will say Mr. Ursay was intoxicated. At that time, I was working for WMAR-TV as a studio tech. And all three stations, WJZ, WBAL, and WMAR, went out, set up live to go in the air for Mr. Ursay's press conference. Mr. Ursay got up there and started with some very, very salty language. Never went out of business. They went into Memorial Stadium every Sunday, even when they're playing in Indianapolis and played, uh, played music. So that's kind of what we want to do. It's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful run with those documentaries with lots and lots of uh, smart, smart, creative people involved. There's something mythical about everything that he did. There goes Bo, and nobody catches Bo. He may not stop yet to call was like a you know a rocket ship that was fired out of a cannon. He was excitement incarnate. He was untouchable. Bo was just better than everybody else. All we saw was a man doing things that we had no idea were humanly possible. Then out of nowhere, he was gone. I love the Bo Jackson story. That yeah. was amazing. Well, it's, we, we now are up, of course, for 30 38 30 for 30. <laughs> well, no, we're up to about 75. Oh, God. Uh, and there's no really no intention to stop. I mean, at this point, what we want to continue to do is produce great documentaries about seminal moments in sports, Bo Jackson being a good example. Part of what you're talking about here at the Aspen Institute is about thought leadership and management and how that can be applied to other companies. What are some of the other great lessons of of building ESPN that are applied to other businesses and, and organizations? Look, I think that um, some of the defining characteristics that create ESPN success, I mean, it is that grounding we were just talking about, and Bristol being important about that. It's its a little bit of simple mission. We serve sports fans, and that's sort of a rallying cry that allows people to understand what they're doing. We're a fast-moving company. We make decisions quickly. We adopt new technology. We're not, we, we have a risk-taking culture. Um, I don't think we ever think of ourselves as the as the um, incumbent. We think of ourselves still as insurgents, and I think that's important to continue to. That'll adapt serve you well as, as your competition comes on the horizon. Uh, we I, we've always had competition, but you're right. We're uh, after uh, uh, many 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 years of other folks not being sure that doing a 24/7 cable network was a good idea. Many people suddenly think it was a good idea. That it is a good idea. It is a good idea. And we'll see how they do. Uh, we, we welcome competition. I think uh, it likely makes us better. I know you, we got to get to your event, but uh, making commercials for yourself to build your audience, killing it with humor, uh, making bringing these great athletes down several pegs and your own talent down many mm -hmm. pegs, 
How did this come to pass, and what are some of your favorite memories? Um, look, I, I've had the great experience now of working on the two most iconic, potentially two most iconic media campaigns of all time. At Rolling Stone, I was there for Perception Reality, and at ESPN, uh, this is Sports Center. We are now up to a, a little bit over 400 commercials, by the way, which is a sign of a good campaign that it is sustainable and continues on. And the point of those is to make people think Bristol, Connecticut is the center of the sports universe. There's great irony because when we first did it, it wasn't the center of sports universe. We had to get people up there. It is now every day there are coaches and players and ex-players, and it is the center of the sports universe right now. And if you're, some of your favorites that come to mind that we'll, that we'll put uh, on Let People I, play? I, I always cite, and I don't know why, but when people ask my favorite, I have never seen the one with Charlie Steiner. Uh, hiding under a desk and a Fander Holyfield walking through the halls going, come and get your whooping, Charlie, uh, without laughing. It can get competitive here at SportsCenter. So Charlie says you're maybe the 50th best heavyweight. In the world? In Georgia. But when there are differences, we keep it in the family. Oh, yeah, and Steve Levy sits over here. He's the one who called you pukeaboom. Hey, Jeff, don't forget your stick. And keeping it in the family made our family stronger. Charlie, come on out and get you whooping. Charlie, come on out. Stand So that's, uh, that's a favorite. I, I love the ones that, that, as you say, are self-deprecating and, and funny and, and uh, whimsical. Thank you very much, John Skipper. Okay, thank Appreciate you. Appreciate all your time. Appreciate it.